Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Ruth. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Before we turn to Ruth chapter 3, um, let's, uh, let's pray again this morning. And Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning and Thank you for the Guptas. Thank you for HBI and their ministry in, in India, and really that's impacting across the world. Lord, I pray that you'd bless him as he's here in the States and um, visiting churches and family. It would just be a refreshing time for, for him and his wife. Um, Lord, thank you for what they continue to do in an area of the world that is just so numerous in the, the presence of Christianity and when discipleship is happening right there, it's gonna affect millions and millions of people. I just pray that you continue to, to bless their hands, their efforts, uh, that you would take them where you would have them to go and, and lead them in, in a righteous path, uh, that many people would respond to the gospel, uh, become faithful followers of you through their ministry. Lord, um, we, just, uh, we do pray for this morning. I, I wanna lift up... Uh, Lift up our church family members that are going through difficult times. Lift up my brother in Christ, Micah. Right now, just, just pray that you would strengthen him and be with him in a special way. Thank you for his family. Help him to rely and, and trust and depend on you. Lord, as we look into your word and, and we consider the great truths of redemption, we pray that you would change us starting with our own hearts right here this morning to be closer and closer and molded more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. One of my all-time favorite movies, my mentor used to call it by the name of Shim Sham Reduction. It's actually Shawshank Redemption. You guys know the, know the story, you know the movie. It's, it's a really great movie. One of the great aspects of Shawshank Redemption is it's not a, it's not a Hollywood production. There's not a, a whole lot of special effects, cinematography. It's a low-budget film. It's, it's just a good story. The whole thing transpires largely through dialogue, thanks to one of the greatest actors that could ever narrate a film, Morgan Freeman. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is all about a, a man by the name of Andy Dupree, Dupree and he is uh, convicted of a murder that he didn't commit. And so he goes to a prison called Shawshank, and he is redeemed from that whole situation. What's amazing is, is as Andy's going through these experiences and, and he's just going through life as it, as it occurs and as things come up and as he meets people and they come and go out of the prison is, is he's different than all the other prisoners. Uh, he has a way of, of overcoming his circumstance better than most. He meets friends, he makes the most of situations. He's a banker, and so he teaches a lot of the prison guards how to do their taxes better, make better investments on their estates and, and whatever other financial situations that he could, he could get into. Of course, one of his best friends is, is the character that's played by Morgan Freeman, Red, and, and one, of the, one of the greatest scenes in this entire movie is that as an educated man, he wants to bring education into the prison, into Shawshank. He writes for, for years, days upon days, requesting funds from the government. Well, finally, 
They got sick of reading all of his letters, so they send just all these books and everything he would need to start a prison library. And they put them all in this room. He just, he really can't believe it. He's so excited he's gonna have a chance to educate these inmates. And in the corner of his eye, he sees not, not only just a stack of books, but there's this old record player. And he sees some records next to it. And he digs out a piece by Mozart. And he begins to listen to it. He kind of gets a, an escape from the reality of the cells that were around him. He plays it on the loudspeaker and all the guards and everybody in the prison is typically socializing. You just see him out in the yard looking straight at the speaker where the sound is coming from and taking it all in. And during this whole time, Morgan Freeman jumps in and he narrates. He says this. He says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best, best left unsaid. I like to think they were thinking about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. Makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, these voices soared. Higher and farther than any gray place dares to dream. And then for the briefest moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. One of the reasons why I love Shawshank Redemption is because it's a story about freedom. It's about redemption. And redemption in the Bible is, is one of the most important terms that you could ever study and that you could ever look to to understand the truth of the gospel. Redemption means to buy, buy back a release with a ransom price. The quintessential example of redemption is found in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. You don't get too far along before you see the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Moses, the great liberator, comes along and, and frees them, redeems them, buys them out of their slavery. For a, a, redem a redemption to take place, there has to be a, a ransom price. And typically, we think of redemption in terms of people, but in the Old Testament, many things could be redeemed. Houses were redeemed, properties were redeemed. There were different redemption laws for a house that was inside of the city versus redeeming a house that was outside of the city. If you own land or property, eventually that could be redeemed by, if you had to sell it, if you had to give it away, it could be redeemed by a close family member. They could purchase it back, or you could just wait until the year of Jubilee when everything would go back to the original owners. In the Bible, when we look at the concept of redemption, three things stand out more than anything else. We know that redemption refers to the recovery or the restoration of something. There was an original estate of affairs. Redemption takes you back to what originally once was. For redemption to happen, a, a ransom price is necessary, and, and finally, there is always the person. Somebody must pay the price. Somebody must be willing to redeem and fulfill the requirements of that redemption. Most often in the Old Testament, we read about God being our ultimate redeemer. Job 19, verse 25. As he's suffering, going through his uh, trials and circumstances, right in the middle of it, he says, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. In Isaiah 41, verse 14, I am the one who helps you declares the Lord, your Holy One and, and your Redeemer. Redemption is 
through and through the biggest and the strongest concept that you'll read about in Ruth chapter three and, and maybe even in the entire book. And so I wanna take this morning and, and explain a little bit about what redemption means, what it means for you and I to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Look down at your text if you found, I hope you have uh, Ruth chapter three. And I'm just gonna read through this entire chapter so we can get a good picture of it. Ruth chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it might be, might be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you exactly what to do. Ruth replied, all that you say I will do, verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, he turned over, and behold, a woman was laying at her feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servants, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer that is nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and measured six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city with it. And she came to her mother-in-law and she said, how did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave for me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You've probably heard the uh, three keys to good real estate investment. Location, 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 right? Every great story takes place in a certain location. We call it the setting of a story. Oftentimes in narrative literature, the, the question is not what is happening as much as where it's happening. Settings in the Bible can, can color everything else. They set the mood and the tone. Sometimes the settings of a story are very symbolic, even metaphorical, and get beneath the surface level of the text. Other times it's just good to know the setting so you know the surroundings and what might contribute to what Jesus is saying or what the apostles are, are going through as they journey together. Every good story has a great setting, but good stories not, all, not only have a specific setting, they are also driven by a plot. A plot is the sequence of events in the narrative that take the, the story forward. It's the action. It's how the, the narrator or the writer depicts 
the story and what's going on. And of course, every great plot has a conflict in it. It's not very far into the biblical story, Genesis 1 and 2, that you come to a huge conflict in Genesis 3. That conflict won't ultimately be resolved until the person of Christ is on the scene and in really Revelation 21 and 22 where we see the end of the story. But of the three elements that make up a good story, perhaps nothing is more important and nothing grabs my heart as much as characterization or perhaps character development. When you talk about setting, you're answering the question of where. When you talk about plot, you're answering the question of what. When you talk about characterization or character development, you're talking about who, how they're being transformed, how they're developing in the story. Who can forget the great transformation of Eustace Clarence Scrub? He's got a terrible name, turns into a dragon. Eventually becomes a a great hero in Narnia. We read stories of, of characters whose lives are completely transformed. When Andy came into Shawshank, he was much different than when he left. Personal experiences, whether good or bad, change characters, and they change them very deeply. But characterization in the Bible is not like watching Shim Sham Reduction, or it's not like reading a Tolkien novel. The book of Ruth can be read in about 15 minutes in one setting. We're left to wonder exactly what's going on in the hearts and in the lives of characters. In fact, there's a lot of things that we have to infer and even uh, imagine as we read narrative what's happening in their hearts. Leland Reichand has a great book on reading the Bible as literature, and he says this. The result is, as readers, we need to be very active in inferring what a character is like on the basis of minimal information. I'm telling you all this to tell you that once we get to chapter three in the book of Ruth, a lot has happened to the characters and specifically to Naomi. Remember, this book is named after Ruth, but the story is ultimately about Naomi, about her experience of going from tragedy and suffering and loss to being completely redeemed through that whole situation. Every chapter in the book of Ruth ends with Naomi, a scene with her typically talking to Ruth. At the end of chapter one, Naomi is bitter. She is embittered by God. She says God has made her bitter because of their circumstances. Once you get to the end of chapter two, Naomi begins to soften. Time is healing some wounds in her life and in her heart. But make no mistake, by the time you get to the beginning of chapter three in Ruth, Naomi is a completely different person. She stops her pity party and she starts examining her attitude. She stops being so self-focused and she starts being other-oriented. In fact, instead of thinking about her problems, she's thinking about a new proposal for Ruth. Naomi is developing in this story. She's changing drastically through the things that are happening, some of them behind the scenes, and you have to read in between the lines to catch it. How many of you think it's uh, right for a man to come along to a father to ask for a daughter's hand in marriage. My goodness, Joe, thank, Lord have mercy. Christopher, right, we're on the same page. Listen, whoever marries Kennedy, 
you've got to go through this guy right here, and I can already tell you the answer. It's no, so don't even come to this guy. There used to be a day when men would go through the father, they would get down on one knee, and they would propose to the woman. You guys remember those days? How many of you did that when you got married? Handful of you. Not even close to what happens in the story of Ruth. It's not the man who asks and proposes for marriage. It's the woman. And it is a scene that is dramatic and heightened sexually to the utmost extent. Uh, There's a series of commands down in verse 3. I want you to look at verse 3. Wash, Naomi tells Ruth. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down, make yourself known, observe where he lies, uncover his feet. There's a lot of things happening here. Dr. Chisholm in his commentary on Ruth, he says, what's indicated in the Hebrew is a series of instructions that amount to a marriage proposal very risky marriage proposal. Chisholm also points out that there's a cluster of verbs here that give this a sexual connotation. There's drinking that's been happening, there's laying down, there's uncovering, and all this happens under the stars at night in Bethlehem. But there's no hint of indecency in any of the text. There's no suggestion that Uh, temptation went fully indulged into. In fact, what we know of from the text as we read it is that Boaz and Ruth handled this situation with uh, the utmost of character and integrity. The point is not what's happening with Ruth, really. The point is what's happening with Naomi. You ever wonder how different your personal story could have been Bobby, you guys, you're born in India, right? Or were you born in America? I was born in America. India, native-born wife. You ever wonder why you were born, when you were born? I I think about these things often. I think about uh, what would have happened if my ancestors never immigrated from Holland to America. I think about if my dad never went down to my grandfather's bar in his basement to meet my mom, would they ever have got married? What would have happened if the shell that landed right next to him at Iwo Jima actually went off and he died? Would I even be here? The past is very intriguing to me, but the past can be extremely dangerous to all of us. Sometimes we get so hung up on the past it actually keeps us from living in the present. Many people idealize the past. Think about the good old days. Remember when life was a lot easier? Remember when kids played outside rather than on their phones? Ran around, kicked the can all hours of the night? Remember when you could leave your car doors and your front door open? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10 says, Do not say, why were the good days better than these days? It's not wisdom. Other times we can demonize our past with regret despair. All we want to do is go back and change what we did back then, our decisions, if we could only do it all over again. Thinking too much about our past or too much about our future is is actually really unhealthy, according to the Bible. Some people are imprisoned by irrational fear of time. 
always thinking about, oh, if I only have enough time, I can do this later on in the week. If I get this task done right now, then I'll be able to do this tomorrow. There will never be enough time if, if you look at time as a commodity to be consumed rather than a gift to be enjoyed. The only time we have is now. The only task you have is the task that's right in front of you. Jerry Sitzer has a, a great quote, and he says this. He says, there is no golden age to which we must return. There's no hellish experience that consigns us to a lesser life. There's only God writing his story, a story of redemption. Let me read that one more time. There is no golden age to which we must return. There's no hellish experience that consigns us to a lesser life. There is only God writing his story. The story of redemption. One of my favorite theologians, Andy Dufresne, put it this way. Get busy living or get busy dying. But all of us must make a choice. We have no power to reverse our past. We have no control to predict the future. We have now. We have confidence that God is going to redeem every single situation in our life for his, for his glory, for his purposes. That he is taking ashes and making something beautiful no matter where you are in life and no matter what you're going through. Redemption teaches us many things, but the, the first thing that is teaching Naomi is to live in the here and now, not in the then and there. She has gone from a person who is consumed with her past, her suffering, her tragedy. She can't get over it. She's embittered with it. Hard for her to take the next step and get out of bed in the morning because she keeps thinking about what she lost. She has no picture of redemption in her mind until you get to chapter three. Redemption teaches us many things, but it teaches us at least this, that we live in the present tense, not in the past. We don't glory in the past, and we don't look to the future foolishly. We live right here. We do God's work that he's given for us to do at this moment in obedience and faithfulness to his word. Second thing we learn about redemption from Ruth chapter three is this. God writes every redemptive story from beginning to end. God writes every redemptive story from beginning to end. Bobby, what would you say after that statement? Amen, hallelujah. This guy's got more energy than I know what to do with and he's like probably twice my age. Uh, unbelievable. God writes all of our redemptive stories. He is the author of them. There's no part of our story that he hasn't written or he doesn't know about. He has designed it for a redemptive purpose, for a glorifying purpose. As the story unfolds, Ruth does just as Naomi told her. And we have to assume that this is, this is some kind of a cultural practice is going on here at the threshing floor. If you don't assume that, you're kind of like, what in the world is happening? Ruth goes and uncovers Boaz's feet. Feet is often a euphemism in scripture for the lower body. I don't, I don't know what's happening. I know, all I know is that they're outside. She uncovers his feet, which causes him to wake up. It startles him. And immediately he looks over and he sees Ruth. And Ruth says, this is the one thing that Naomi told her not to say. This is the one thing that she goes off script on. 
And maybe it is a, a bold and risky move from Ruth here. But here's what she says. She says, verse nine, spread your wings over your servants for you are a redeemer. And that image is gonna take us back to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse eight. It says this, behold, you are at the age for love. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. Behold, you are at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Metaphorically, God is depicted as spreading his wings over naked Israel, sinful Israel. He takes her in, protects her, and he marries her. We often see this description in the Psalm. Psalm 91 talks about the Lord covering us, sheltering us as his refuge, the Most High. Psalm 17 says God's people are hidden in the shadow of God's wings. In Hebrew, the word for skirt and wing, garment and wing, it's the same word. So you have to decipher that by the context. Ruth asked Boaz to take her in as God took in his people to care for her, to protect her, to bring her in as his refuge, his safe, her safe place. And I want you to look back to chapter two, verse 12, because it's, it's very reminiscent of some words we've already heard in this story. Ruth chapter two, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, Boaz says to Ruth, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's almost as if Boaz realizes that he will be the one that God uses to protect Ruth. Ruth uses his very words in this blessing, in this prayer for her. It's an indicator God has written a redemptive story on Ruth's life, on Naomi's life. There's another indicator too. Skip down to chapter three, verse, tw verse 11. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow towns townsmen. Know that you are a, a worthy woman. The Hebrew is ishet chayil, a woman of excellence. You see it in Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, an excellent wife who can find. It's a perfect match for Boaz. In chapter two, he is described as a ish gebor chayil. He is a man of great excellence, a man of great wealth, perhaps. Was this God's redemptive plan all along that the ishet chayil would meet the ish chayil? That the woman of excellence would come along and meet the man of excellence? That man, I, it's hard to get up here and preach when I listen to so many of your stories during the week. Just people's, people's stories are in my mind. Let me talk about truth for just a second. Uh, the Bible is true, yes? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we would say that God has given us a grand story. This is not a false story, but it's a true story. And it's a good story. It's a beautiful story, because it is true. The story is central to the Christian faith, which means that the Christian faith, in essence, is 
story. It's caught up in story. It's not something other than story. Christianity is not a a set of moral principles, guidelines to live by. Sure, there's there's laws and there's morals in the pages of Scripture, and, and those give us hints on how God wants us to live, but the laws themselves are, are not how we come into this thing called the Christian life. Laws are different than gospel. The story it contributes to the story, but it's not the story. Christianity is, is not a set of, of moral principles, although pr- moral principles are involved. Neither is Christianity a philosophy or an idea. Um, if that was the case, then becoming a Christian would be all about what we think, And we all know that there's more to it than that. Philosophies tell you how to think. The biblical story tells you about actions, lives that have been transformed by the glory of God. Christianity is not the same as the culture it produces. It's not the same as a mystical experience that might come and go. The Christian faith is different than all those things. From start to finish, Christian faith is a story. It's a grand story, a meta-narrative that everything that got messed up in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three will be redeemed and made right by the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a story about how God created the world, how man messed it up, how he's going to redeem it through Jesus Christ and come back to rule and reign forever, how he once created this world to be, but even better than that at the end of time. The best word to describe this story is, is that it's redemptive. It's a restoring story. God purchases back that which always belonged to him in the first place. He's owned it since day one. It belongs to him. But he has to pay the price to rescue it from sin and and its fallen nature. And redemption really is the key word for the story that God has depicted from Genesis to Revelation. I can think of no better word to describe the actions in God's plan throughout history than the fact that he has written a redemptive story of how he will overcome sin and death through the Redeemer, Jesus, his Son, who will rule and reign forever. And we will live with him in peace forever. Redemption indicates movement back to something. It's back from bad to being good again. Back from sickness to being healthy. Back from crooked to being straight we, we look at redemption with the, the same prefix as other words, like restore. You guys know the essence of redemption when you can kind of think about it in terms of restoration. When you restore an old truck or an old car, you take it back to its original condition. When you rebuild a home, you take what was once there and, and you restore it, you rebuild it so it's stronger and it's better. Perhaps you return to your family as a prodigal You return to the way that things once were. Redemption follows the same logic, but with an important theological twist to it. God redeems people who are captive, enslaved to sin, imprisoned. Redemption always involves willingness of a redeemer. The right payment price has to be made in order for things to be restored to to what they once were. At Calvary and at the cross of Jesus Christ, He has redeemed us from sin. He has redeemed us from the captivity and from the enslavement and from the imprisonment of sin. He has set us free to live a life that glorifies him apart from any constraints of distance, nearness, 
omnipresence and sovereignty, we have a relationship now with the creator who created us and restores us to that right relationship. He has reclaimed what was rightfully his. He has purchased us with a price. We are not our own. He has bought us back. What really jumps out in the text as we read Ruth chapter three, have you noticed it? All the uses of the word redeemer. You're gonna find at least six or seven of them from verses nine through 13. Redeem, redeemer, redeem, redeemer. Boaz is potentially a redeemer here. He has, he's in a position where he can purchase Ruth back. I didn't know that she was for sale. What is going on here? If Boaz doesn't redeem Ruth, doesn't redeem Naomi, both of them will live as, as servants and slaves. They will never have any possessions, identity. They will have nothing to fall back on. They will get old. They will be mistreated. They will eventually die. Boaz comes along and he does something about that. He's the redeemer who can do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He has the ability to pay the price for their freedom. They don't. He has the ability to do something for them. They don't. He can show grace and mercy and do this as an act of gracious benevolence that they don't deserve and they could never earn. Jesus Christ redeemed us at Calvary's cross, reclaiming what was rightfully his. He bought us out of the world's system of sin and death with his blood. And the Father said, that payment is good for you to have a relationship with me. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in the story of Ruth, as Jesus is the kinsman redeemer over all humanity. He paid the price. Not only could he do it, he was willing to do it. You ever notice how this, this guy Boaz comes from some random field in Bethlehem and he seems to own everything? Do you know in another story in the Bible about some random guy that nobody ever would even think of going to who owns everything and redeems humanity? The light that shines from Bethlehem. Boaz is the redeemer because he can do something for Ruth and Naomi that they cannot do for themselves and that is this, to save them from their plight their hopeless condition. This little story of redemption sounds so similar to a much bigger story of redemption. All of our stories are caught up into a bigger story. You ever notice why so many people are attracted to stories that start this way? Once upon a time, there was a king in a kingdom, and the king loved the queen, and everything was right in the kingdom. You ever wonder why we're so attracted to these stories that start so well, something happens to change all of that, and then the hero comes in to rescue it? The one that nobody expects? The reason why that pulls on our strings is because it's a smaller story that's caught up in a grander story. It's how God redeems our little stories for his purposes and for his glory. The third thing about redemption this morning, our circumstances. However desire, desirable or miserable, play a limited but a useful role in life. Our circumstances, however desirable or miserable, always play a limited role in our lives. And I want you to look down just at one verse, verse 17. Boaz, uh, Ruth is talking with Naomi here, and she's explaining the barley that came from Boaz, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me 
for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Well, now we're coming full circle all the way back to chapter one, aren't we? This is the same one that said, I've come back to Bethlehem empty-handed and embittered against God. You're not empty-handed anymore. I'm redeeming that. I'm changing that. Your story does not end empty-handed. We must realize that there are no better or worse circumstances that some people experience in life. If anything, it's more favorable for us to experience more suffering and hardship when we think about it in terms of redemption than less. Sometimes God ordains and orchestrates for people to go through really hellish times. Other people seem to fly by without suffering much at all. Neither of those people stand in a better position than the other because God has promised to redeem both and both desperately need redemption. All things happen for good to those who love God. All things happen to good, for good to those who love God. That's the teaching of redemption. You guys are uh, you guys familiar with this statue? Statue of David. Uh, stands 16 feet tall, pure marble. You'll find it in uh, northern Italy. How close is that to hometown Florence? Is Florence close to you, hometown? You'll find this in an art museum, a, a Galleria in Florence, Italy. It's uh, one of the best pieces that Michelangelo has ever sculpted, world-renowned. It's, a, it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing what he's done with, with art as a sculptor. But this isn't the only figure that you'll see at that same art museum in Galleria. You'll also see five more statues, at least. These are much lesser known, I uh, might have shared this with you before, but, but they're significant. And they're lined out so that they lead you to the perfect statue. It's made at the end of the hallway. The five statues are called the prisoners. They're marble blocks, um, pieces that Michelangelo perhaps started but never finished. What's amazing about these statues, though, is is how there's like a, a perfect element to them, even though they're not complete. So you've got this, this marble block with a perfect torso and everything else is still yet to be done or, or a hand or an arm with just the detail and the precision that Michelangelo is able to put on this thing and, but the rest of it is kind of like, what's going on? Um, it's almost as if the larger marble block is holding them captive. Not allowing them to get out of their prison hence the prisoners. They're striving to escape out of it. Jerry Sitzer in his book, A Grace Revealed, says this, Michelangelo believed that he, a sculptor of stone, was a tool in the hands of God, and he was assigned a task of releasing his subjects from the marble that entombed them or imprisoned them. These statues can teach us something about redemption, They teach us that God is the artist, we are all the marble block. And as the divine artist, God loves us, he gives to us, he molds us and he shapes us and he redeems us. But as perfect as we are, we are still stuck in the marble slab. We're still stuck in those blocks. 
as, as fallen, sinful human beings, even though we, we are redeemed, we still struggle with sin. Sinful thoughts, tendencies, behaviors. We realize that there's still a whole lot of work that needs to be done by the artist, by the sculptor. He continues to chisel away. And folks, I hate to say this, but the way that God is going to show us our redemption is often through pain as his instrument. As we close, the first point I want to make is that every story of redemption is tied, closely tethered to another larger story. Every story of redemption is closely tethered to a much larger story. Naomi and Ruth need to find themselves caught up in a in a much grander story of God's redemption for humanity and for the world and the universe that he has created. We often hear these stories, we love stories, we're taken in by stories, again, where the hero comes along to redeem those who can't do anything for themselves. We love these kind of stories because of the redemption that echoes. It's the bigger story that they reflect. We long to discover how our story fits into the larger story. We long to be the hero of the story to free and to release those and bring back an original state of affairs. We long to know that despite what happens in our lives and despite the pain and suffering we experience, that our story too will be redeemed and caught up, made perfect in this time more than next. Redemption is both an act and a process. We are redeemed, past tense, we are in the process of being redeemed, present tense. Redemption is such a rich concept because it's so multifaceted. There's elements of what it means to be redeemed that go deep. On one hand, believers in Christ, again, we are set free from sin. On the other hand, we still struggle with sin. We're waiting for final redemption. Redemption is, is both an event and a process, meaning that we are redeemed, but we still need to be redeemed. We are perfect, but we are still being made perfect. Redemption tells us to get ready. The second we thought that we are completely useful and, and ready to finally be in God's service, the Lord takes out his chisel and gives us a little bit more pain to remind us that his work, this side of glory, will never be done. It begs of us to stop comparing ourselves to other Christians. Instead, we walk alongside Christians as fellow redeemed people, continuing to be redeemed in the sight of God. Sometimes in ministry, I worry much more about the mature Christians than I do the infants in Christ. Guys that just come to Christ realize that there is a lot of work to be done in their heart and soul. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time think there's less, there's not. God is still chiseling away on all of us. He's still capturing the things in our heart and soul that haven't been surrendered to the truth of the gospel. Sometimes he takes us off the wheel, the potter's wheel, and he shatters us, and he picks it back up out of the mud, and he puts it right back on there again. Sometimes we have to learn those lessons over and over again. Sometimes we're so stuck in the marble, we can't even see the glory that he has just painted in our hand, our torso, or a leg, and see the grace of God that has got us there. Sin is deceiving, it's blind. We have to remember that we are all being redeemed. We have all been redeemed if we have trusted Christ. The last thing I want to talk about, though, and the thing I want to end on redemption is, is simply this. Redemption is an event, 
It is certain, certainly a process, but it's also a person. Uh, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and this is the last verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Let's go up to uh, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 30 says, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are in redemption. Redemption is a person. There is no way on God's green earth that whatever circumstance, situation you find yourself in today will ever be redeemed for something good apart from a person, Jesus Christ. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're experiencing, so, much, so many of us go to different things for relief, for safety, for significance, and for identity. Meanwhile, the one answer, the one thing that we need more than anything is not a medicine, not a healthcare plan, it's not a uh, wealth, it's not possessions, it's not any of those worldly things. The one thing that we need the most is a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Those of us who know Jesus because of his death on the cross who have placed our faith in him are redeemed. We have found redemption. It doesn't mean that our lives are gonna be perfect from here on out. In fact, it probably means they're gonna get a little tougher. What it does mean is that we have a restored relationship. We are moving backwards to what God once created humanity to be we have found hope and significance that nothing in this world can offer. Whatever else that you look to in this world for significance and for your identity will eventually go away, either with time, death, disease, or something else. A personal relationship is the one thing that won't with Jesus Christ. He is our redeemer. In him we have redemption, freedom from sin. He has taken slaves and he has freed them. He has taken prisoners and he has released them. He has taken our sin-sick souls and brought them back to health. He has taken what is dead and raised it to life. Naomi is just getting a glimpse of that. We're just getting a glimpse of that. The final story is yet to be told. The final redemption is yet to come. That's the day we all wait for, and we pray that the Lord would haste his return to make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the uh, moments that we've had to just look deeply into the great theological truth of, of what it means to be redeemed. I pray that if there's somebody in this room who hasn't found freedom from sin through Christ, 
that you would soften their hearts to respond by simple faith in you and what you've done for them on the cross by shedding your, your son's blood, Jesus' blood, believing what he's done for us, dying and resurrecting three days later, that we can be redeemed, we can be set free from this world, from its patterns, from our sinful behaviors, tendencies. We can have true life with you, a life that's eternal. Father, I thank you for the beauty of redemption. I thank you that you're willing to pay the price of redemption. I thank you that there was nothing that stood in the way of you restoring and redeeming your creation back to what you created it to be. We pray that our lives would be lived out redemptively. Give us a view of eternity. Help us to find our little mini stories caught up in a much grander story for your kingdom and for your glory. Oh God, we pray it. To you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God. And there is no God besides you. Amen.